0: Welcome to the sixth episode of the Historians of Netherlandish Art podcast. My name is Angela and I'm here with Marcely And today we have a very interesting conversation in store for you on disability and art. With us today are Angelo Loconte and Barbara Kabitska. Perhaps it is a nice idea if you introduce yourselves uh, for our listeners. Angelo, maybe you can start.
1: Uh, my name is Angelo Loconte. Uh, I'm assistant professor at the Academy of Visual Arts, Hong Kong Baptist University. I'm an art historian. Um, I am Italian. I completed my doctorate in Australia before moving to Hong Kong. I have mostly worked on 16th and 17th century Italian art. Uh, previously, with an interest on the economic lives of artists and specifically painters. And now I'm mostly working on artists, um, art and disability uh, with uh, a specific focus on deafness.
0: And I'm Barbara Kaminska. I'm assistant professor at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. I'm originally from Poland and I got my MA in Art History at the University of Warsaw. My research is primarily focused on 16th century Netherlandish art, I used to work primarily on religious art, and now I'm also shifting more towards disability studies.
1: Disability studies as an academic discipline have been growing dynamically for over 30 years, and yet it is still fairly new direction of research for early modern art history. Why do you think our field has this kind of delayed interest in the history of disability?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are a couple of factors at play here. I think first and foremost, Renaissance art history, Renaissance collecting practices have always been very much linked to the able bodied paradigm. Um, and early modern viewers, when they talked about depictions of disability, even though they didn't use this word, obviously, they would primarily focus on theoretical and philosophical interpretations of those depictions. And also in the early modern period, the majority of images of disability they come up in religious context. Um, and so there's been this long tradition of thinking about disability as a metaphor, and it's not something that we see in art history, only it's in fact a very common phenomenon. Disability has been called by many disability scholars, the master metaphor of social ill, and even when it's not a metaphor, we tend to read it um, that way. But I think we should also look at this question from the perspective of disability studies. So disability studies when they first uh, were formulated in the 1980s, they sought to replace the so called medical model of disability in which um, disability is a defect is something abnormal that needs to be removed with the social model of disability in which the problem lies not within the impaired body, but the society. And seen from this perspective, the concept of disability has been historically placed around the industrial revolution, which is also when art history as a discipline emerged. And I think because of that, there's been a kind of natural inclination to look at visual arts and disability primarily from fr- primarily in modern and contemporary art um but i wonder what are your thoughts on this issue
1: yeah no barbara i, I absolutely agree i mean this um connection between the historical connotation of, of artisse as a discipline and the development of the medical mo- model especially you know with their beginnings in the mid 19th uh, century um, i mean that is uh this a uh, an extremely important point, and this basically has generated um, a couple of um, very evident outcomes. On on the one hand, as you as you mentioned, this is this tendency of uh, um, characterizing uh, disability as a as a pictorial motives. and so you know the image of the the, the beggars and 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 those ideas of um, you know the, the the piety and 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 so on. On the other hand, with regard to the life of the artists themselves um, um, completely disregarding disability and completely forgetting career forgetting histories um, with with regard to, to to reasons I guess I mean um, we could point out to, to uh, at least another one um, with with regard to disability and art history, most of the attention has been placed especially in the last 20 25 years with uh, to contemporary art um, and that's uh, you know, of course, the, the, the reality of, of the situation. And uh, in early modern studies, there, is, there has been a tendency to overlook um, this type of analysis. Uh, on one hand, uh, there, there has been a little bit of reluctance to uh, adopt a, a multidisciplinary approach that would take into consideration modern theory on disability studies, but also social history of medicine, uh, socioeconomic history, and, and so on. Um, And on the other hand, quite frankly, uh, with regard to the early modern period, also the absence of a a kind of historical and and, and theoretical framework uh, on which to work on. So for instance, in the last 20 years, studies um, especially in in social history have have laid out um, for for us the the field to, to understand a little bit more ways in which the way in which disability was, was, was understood in the medieval and, and the early modern period. And, and so I guess that, you know, now we're a little bit facilitated by this. Uh, we have more structure, more framework to, 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 to work on. Um, and, and also the, the, the last thing that I wanted to say is that there is also perhaps, we should also look at the ways in which different societies nowadays uh, look at disability. And so, you know, we are taking mostly into consideration Scholarship in uh, published in English, of course, uh, but you know, if we were to look at um, scholarship published in in other languages, in my case, you know, I study early modern Italian, so in Italian, um, the the amount of publication dedicated to the topic is uh, is even inferior, actually, and, and so the field has actually not started yet. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point, and. I think to some extent, it's a point that's also valid in the American context. What we've seen in the US is academia being reactive rather than proactive. So, and don't get me wrong, I think there are a lot of really exciting things happening in our field in American scholarship, but this doesn't change the fact that it often takes some kind of dramatic events to change the direction of our scholarship which of course it shouldn't be that way. Academia is really a place, maybe the place where issues of diversity, inclusivity and accessibility should be studied in a more intersectional framework. So I think on a very basic level, there just needs to be more support in terms of jobs, in terms of funding for studying disability in the context of early modern art.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so now I am going to ask you, um, how did you become interested in, in disability and I mean how basic your research started was there like a, a specific point or was kind of a natural organic thing.
0: So my path to disability studies has been very, very traditional um, until recently I was focusing on images of miraculous healing in the early modern Netherlands. That's what my second book, which was published last fall, discussed. So the book was really a study of social medical, theological approaches to biblical stories of healing miracles and how their representation in Dutch and Flemish art shaped people's attitudes towards persons with disabilities um, who deserve compassion and so on and so forth. But when I was doing research for that project, I became interested in how we can think about impairment and disability in the early modern period beyond this religious angle only so this brought me to my current project, which was focused on Dutch artists with deafness in historiography of art, and I'm particularly interested in this idea of how the very old trope of painting as mute poetry, the trope first formulated in the antiquity, intersects with this more modern idea that um, this more modern idea of sensory compensation, which essentially would tell us that persons with deafness have better vision, make better painters. And I'm fascinated by this concept because Already in antiquity, already in Pliny the Elder's natural history, we read um, about a deaf painter who became a painter because everybody around him advised painting as the best career choice. And we see this trope repeatedly applied literally rather than metaphorically to painters with with deafness. How about you? How, um, How did you come to Disability Studies?
1: Oh, we actually—it's I mean, so fascinating because we're actually looking at um, very similar things um, coming from two different geographic directions, and, and this is this is amazing. Uh, my my kind of um, interaction, first interaction actually with with disability studies has been a little bit more fortuitous. I um, my starting point was a, a document that had already been been seen, but mostly considered as a, as a curiosity. I was doing research in Milan for my um, book, uh, which was on the Procaccini family and uh, was mostly interested in their practice, in their workshop. And uh, um, while in the archives in Milan, I found this document made by one of their pupils, um, Luca Riba. And the document is a Testament. Uh, The Testament is uh, made up of images. So it's a set of 12 drawings with which this painter basically made this last wheel. Um, and uh, I mean, I found this fascinating for, for many, many reasons. Uh, the setting in which the drawings were created is basically those were made to be shown to a judge. And then there were there was the presence of interpreters who were basically, uh, explaining the drawings to the judge, and so that the judge could validate them, it is uh, a very noticeable process actually, because you know this kind of juridic interpretation of interpreting uh, drawings as uh, as written word is something that has been accepted by Italian law only in the last fifty years, I guess. So uh, Milan was very progressive at that time, and you know this discovery prompted me to 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 think about. Um, Artistic careers of of non-hearing artists, um, with with specific focus to to, to early modern Italy, because um, at the end of the day, disability and deafness, specifically, is often mentioned in uh, in early modern biographies of Italian artists, as you know, in in, in, in the Netherlandish context. And um, so, basically, I started to to look, and I was surprised by the sheer number of artists that that I found, and this basically has been the start of my, my current project, um, which basically analyzes the presence, the lives, the careers of uh, deaf artists in Italian history of art. I try to use uh, their biographies, documents pertaining to their life, sometimes their letters, sometimes poetry written about them to to describe how uh, they used our practice as a as profession, Uh, how they were able to to build up careers, the way in which they trained, the way in which uh, um, their their work also was received by by the community. And, And this kind of analysis is deeply also connected with attempts of understanding a little bit more about how the conceptualization of deafness changed in the 16th century, specifically with the writings of physicians like Girolamo Cardano, physicians and philosophers actually, like Girolamo Cardano and Fabrici, D'Acqua uh, was in Padua. I, I, I have a question, regard to your current project and research. Can I ask you to elaborate like a little bit more about how Netherlandish artists are investigated um, in early modern sources? Um, you mentioned the trope of uh, painting as new poetry, uh, but I mean, um, is this kind of a recurring kind of trope that you found? I mean just you know it's very fascinating so if you, if you can elaborate a little bit more about that
0: yes so we definitely find this trope of painting as mute poetry applied literally to their biographies in major sources in Karel van mander hilder book in samuel van Hochstraten's um treaties also in some shorter and um, lesser known um sources but i think what's in a way more troubling to me, but also what drew me to this project is the fact that we see those artists described exactly along the same lines um, in modern art historical writing. So this idea that this or that artist was a good artist because he was deaf and continues to be perpetuated well into really 21st century. And I find this problematic because there are a couple of levels to this so-called sensory compensation a theory, which in the context of art history, I see definitely being enabled by the trope of painting being mute poetry. So we know that the so-called cross model plasticity is a valid and extremely exciting branch of neurological, research, but there is, it's way more subtle than it's usually presented, and are we talking about peripheral vision, are we talking about depth perception in, in people with hearing impairments, but then there is a whole psychological level of this theory as well, and there are many people with deafness who uh, would say that they don't experience any kind of enhancement of their vision. On the other hand, there are also psychological studies that indicate that some persons with deafness internalize this idea of sensory compensation. So even when they don't experience any sensory compensation that could be measured and proved by tests, they believe themselves to be of, uh, to have better, better vision. It's sometimes explained as a sort of psychological mechanism that is meant to preserve and improve their self-esteem. So I'm trying to interrogate in what ways painters in early, in the early modern Netherlands um, could have used it to their advantage. And to some extent, this belief that, well, they are good painters because they are deaf. Um, is ableist?
1: Yeah, um, and, and on, on that actually, um, and I mean that is true um, also for um, um, you know the context of, of of Italian art, specifically with in relation to how the careers of those artists have been analyzed, um, really until the half of the twentieth century. But there is an interesting distinction. In, in early modern sources, actually, because I have found, at least in the Italian context, that there is a very strong difference between the biographical accounts uh, written of artists. So basically those regional stories of art that developed from, from Alzari and then started to touch every, every corner of Italy and works of Renaissance poetry dedicated to the work of those artists. And so in the bio- biographical accounts, the trope is basically non-existent. Disability and the deafness is, is mentioned as uh, as 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 not an, as an announcing factor or in any way as a factor in in the analysis of the artist's career. So on the other hand, the trope is very very relevant within poetic description of their works or uh, works of poetry dedicated to these works. Uh, that is very much the case. And and also one other thing in relation to this trope, uh, which, which might be interesting because he, many have written, of course, about this. And, you know, it starts with, uh, with Pliny and the story of Quintus Pabius and, and then goes on. Leonardo da Vinci writes about it in uh, really few years after, after arriving in Milan. And um, it is kind of a, very interesting to me that, I mean, regardless of the trope, um, Leonardo da Vinci had a very, very strong interest in, in deafness and muteness. Um, as well as, you know, for, for medical studies, anatomies, and so on. And when he was in Milan, um, he had two interesting encounters. Um, one, he met Fazio Cardano, who was the father of Girolamo Cardano, who's basically uh, the, the initiator of, it was, it was the first Italian scholar who, who advocated deaf education. Um, mm-hmm. And on the other hand, even though this is, I mean, this is yet to be proved, but Leonardo arrives in Milan, he works with uh, Ambrogio de Predis, who's a local artist, and Ambrogio de Predis has a brother, an older brother, Cristoforo, who is the first um, deaf artist recorded in Italian history who was a miniaturist of an illuminator. So there is a, a, a very interesting kind of connection that are in there. And in this case, I think that the trope, I mean, I don't know actually, if the trope of painting as mute poetry should still be considered as the main main motivation for you know oh. Leonardo's writings on, on deafness and muteness and so on, sorry that this has taken a very different direction, but you know just wanted to point it out just <laughs> a couple of things. <laughs>
0: No, I think that's, that's great. Thank you for pointing out all these other possible venues and ways of thinking about um, this trope. I think one of the extreme values that disability studies bring to art history is this opportunity to look at our discipline from a completely different angle. And maybe let's continue with that for a second. How do you see disability studies being relevant to our discipline and maybe beyond it as well?
1: Oh well, very, very, very relevant, and uh, I mean, I think it is an interconnection and a relation that that works both ways. Uh, I mean, we've mentioned how slow, especially early modern art history, has been to to adopt a disability studies approach, and and through this this approach, you know, we can certainly provide a new perspective, uh, giving voice to you know, overlooked points of view, perhaps tackling or challenging some of the stereotypes related to disabilities, representation of disabilities, as I mean, as you've done in your in your book, that, that have been part of the art historical discourse for, for a long time. Also, tackle this kind of negation uh, of the presence of artists with disability in the history of art. I mean, there has been this very strange kind of way of analyzing careers of artists with disabilities by art historians, which has been either neglecting completely the disability or, or, you know, considering artists like Goya or Van Gogh being able to to produce despite of the fact that, you know, and, and I mean, this is a kind of very serious, stereotypized view um, that, uh, uh, that you know, this new approach can, can actually challenge. But as I was mentioning before, this goes really both ways because uh, advancing early modern studies um, on, on art and disability is also very important for contemporary art and and, and and also for the discipline of disability studies because the, the art historical discourse has mostly focused on contemporary art actually, especially in the last 20, 30 years. But early modern examples have been considered sporadically and I must say not always completely understood or like placed properly in a kind of historical or art historical context. And so this type of research can really provide more accurate understanding uh, problem is that sometimes you know we tend to analyze historical connotation of disabilities with our contemporary eyes and that doesn't work um, quite often um, uh, both with regard to the understanding also with use of language you know that is for instance another um, another major issue And also one last thing that I want to say is it is, Relevant also in order to 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 foster more like cross disciplinary research, so you know we have seen how art historians have been reluctant, um, especially in the field of renaissance art, Italian renaissance art for, for what I uh, what this my, my research is to adopt contemporary disability studies theory, um, but I mean vice versa also quite often there has been a kind of a lack of historical depth in you know, contemporary writing about early modern disability. So it's kind of a relation that goes both ways.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's a great point. Um, and I've seen this happening um, quite often in studies on modern and contemporary art uh, that lack this historical background. And the first example that comes to mind is the way Um, The miraculous tradition is often talked about as um, something that is just, I don't know, a a fact um, without really any deeper analysis and what we actually see across cultures is this extreme investment in the idea of miraculous healing. So it's not something that is exclusive only to Western art. And that's how I usually see it being discussed in in the context of modern and and contemporary art. I guess one thing I would like to add to, to what you said is the importance of representation In my classroom, every year, I see more and more students with disabilities and more and more students who are open about their disabilities and showing them that there is renaissance art created by artists with disabilities or that there is renaissance art that depicts persons with disabilities not in a negative discriminatory light only, I think is extremely important also.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, one, one last thing, actually, that I wanted to, to to add to the kind of geographic focus that we have. I mean, hopefully, the, the relevance of those type of studies will also result in a, a more global or interconnected understanding of, of aspects of disability. So for instance, in the context of the the, the Arab court, um, uh, the use of sign, lang- sign language was, was widespread. There have been, you know, wonderful studies about this, and and we we know that uh, Europeans were aware of this. There is tradition, and so you know, all these in- interconnections. I guess they they still need to be um, they still need to be found. Um, and then I I would like to ask Barbara, uh, what do you think is the most uh, difficult aspect? of research on early modern art and disability?
0: Mm -hmm. So I would point to two things and you addressed one of them already. It's very difficult, but I also believe it's the most important aspect of this research is locating what historians call ego documents. So historical documents in which the author talks about him or herself in the first person. So like you were talking about biographies, letters, um, journals, and so on and so forth. And some of those sources have been recovered for Northern Europe. I can't claim a credit for any of those discoveries, but it's definitely an under-researched aspect and something that is very difficult and something that obviously was impossible to do in the past um, two years because of the pandemic. But, but another issue which I see here and which may sound very banal is actually the language itself. So vocabulary changes very rapidly. And it's it differs even within the English-speaking world. And all it takes to see this is to read an essay on disability published in the UK and an essay published in the US. Um, so vocabulary is rapidly changing. There is no agreement even within the disabled community what terms are preferred, of course, individuals have their individual preferences. So I would like to encourage our listeners to be very understanding when they read anything on disability, because some of the terms that, we, that were accepted maybe five years ago are now considered to be discriminatory. So it's something that we need to be mindful of.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I totally agree. I, I have, I mean, exactly your same points. So, but it's vocabulary is uh, is extremely challenging, and uh, and I mean, this is not important. Perhaps I guess you know, for for both me and you, uh, English is a second language, and yeah. and and the kind of connotation that specific words have. Um, in our in our first language have uh, completely different connotations in English. So that is the first kind of mind trick that we have to uh, to do. And also, I mean, within as you mentioned, within the English speaking community, um, it is things change very rapidly. Um, and for us, we also have the challenge that as historians, we we sometimes have to use language that is uh, part of the word that we're studying. And so um, that is also uh, uh, provide using specific words, providing an early modern understanding of them. That is also very, very challenging. Uh, You always have to go back to Latin in that case. Um, Aside from that um, documentation, as you you mentioned, it is uh, very difficult on the one hand to, to find documents has been very difficult in the last two years because it's very difficult to to, to access archives but also those that have been found um, sometimes have been analyzed in a very superficial way Um, so it is also very good to go back to stuff that has already been published and see how actually those documents have been read. With regard to my personal research, again, it's a little bit more con- contingent. I am working on, um, on artists that are basically unknown and they worked on a very, very local level. Um, beautiful little Paris churches in the um, countryside, both in the north and in the south of Italy. Um, and so while it has been fairly easy for me to access documentation, visual documentation has been very problematic. Of course, you know, the impossibility of traveling um and 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 look for them but you know finding even you know local people that were aware of the existence of those artworks of those artists and that they were willing to go there and you know take a picture of of this altarpiece for instance and this speaks a lot also because even locally the memory of those artists has been completely forgotten so yeah that's that's
0: fascinating so can you share with us your favorite or maybe most surprising discovery that you made in your research so far?
1: Okay, well, I, I mean, a uh, couple of things. First of all, I mean, the sheer number of artists uh, that I've been able to, to locate. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that I've missed um, several probably, um, but at, at, there are at least 15 uh, uh, non-hearing artists working in uh, Italy between the 50s and the 6050s uh, it's a number that to me is uh, uh, I mean I was not expecting honestly with regard to the single discovery again it's not truly my discovery but I've been the, the first to analyze this this testament this document by this artist from Milan and that is still to me uh, the most fascinating moment of, of my work just because it was something that not only it's completely unexpected, but it al- it is also basically uh, the the only document of that kind. It's the only testament that we know of that is made exclusively of visual elements. Uh, it's uh, um, and it's a very very interesting object because it is uh, supplemented by a twenty seven page manuscript description of the events of the day, and so. Um, it is aside from the visual aspect of the work, understanding how actually practically the, ev- the events developed during that day, uh, the arrival of the notary, of the interpreters, who was saying what, which kind of um, uh, decisions were made. It's very, very, very fascinating. And also, I mean, the, the drawings themselves are very funny sometimes. You know, he's like trying to punish his nephew because he gambles too much. And so he lives in <laughs> very little money. So this is kind of, you know, like the single most fascinating discovery. But with regard to practice also, you know, understanding that the training was mostly happening through the use of sign language. Um, Of course, different variation of sign language is something that I think it has to be acknowledged. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of recent research that has pointed out how the gestures made by priests during the, you know, Sunday mass had created some sort of bridge between the hearing and non-hearing community, kind of creating a a shared language. uh, the use of sign language, of different variation of sign language, is actually uh, documented in early modern sources. Um, and, and also some, some interesting specific cases. There is an artist from Ferrara, uh, Ercole Sarti, and he studied with uh, uh, a master, Carcellino. And the practice in this workshop was basically to study composition and shadows by using little models, uh, figures of limbs, of heads, of objects, animals, and so on. Um, this was actually a technique that was already used in, 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 um, in Venice by Tintoretto. It's fascinating to see how, in this case, the, the, the sign language was supplemented by uh, all those little uh, you know, studies done with, the, with models.
0: You know, that, that's fantastic. And speaking of painters using sign language, I think my favorite painter whom I discovered um, so far, um, and he, he's actually one of the painters who has been mentioned in art historical writing before, is a painter active in Friesland and Groningen, Jan Jans The Stomme. So um, he, we have a family chronicle which was written approximately 60 years after his death. Um, And Jan is described as someone who established an independent professional practice. Um, He most likely trained in Friesland uh, with vibrant Haste. And it's possible that through this connection, Jan also studied with Rembrandt for a little bit of time, although chronology is a bit tight there. So this is something I will be looking more into. But anyway, I trailed off. Um, Those early sources also mention that Jan was able to have complex theological conversations with his wife and his servant, which I think is a fascinating remark, because in the case of the Netherlands, it's also a bit tricky um, if there was a nuanced enough sign language at that point, and we are talking like 1640s to make such conversations possible. But this remark is fascinating to me because um, Jan was a member of the Reformed Church. So really for him as the head of a family, as the head of a household, it was his duty to ensure religious instruction of his household. But also I think this remark is very important in telling us how closely throughout the early modern period speech and hearing were linked to salvation. So it seems like all the other accomplishments in the view of the author family chronicle were really, maybe not meaningless, but were less important than Jan's ability to engage with religion.
1: Yeah. Um... And one one last thing, actually. Uh, I'm I'm very fascinated by, and this is connected to my previous research, maybe to the kind of business professional aspect of of this. And so um, I have a similar case uh, of an artist who's the head of his own workshop, uh, Giuseppe Badaracco working in Genoa. Actually, he trains his own son who actually continues the family business. Um, And one question that I wanted to ask, have you seen uh, any kind of pattern related to the type of art paintings produced by the artists that you are investigating that can tell us a little bit about the ways in which they were placing themselves, their own production on on the art market of the time?
0: That's a fascinating question. And I have not seen such a pattern. Uh, Jan, Jan de Stomme was a portrait painter. Um, So was another painter active in the same area, um, Martin Bulema de Stomme. And then we have Johannes Topas um, who, I would say that most of what he does are portraits, although he never really developed an independent um, workshop. So I said that there is no pattern, but maybe to some extent there is. So there is definitely some kind of interest in portraiture. On the other hand, I guess by far the most famous painter with deafness, Henrik Averkamp, is the master of ice scene. so that's probably something that would need to be investigated and researched a bit more. But we have these three painters who do primarily portraits, and Jan de Stomme becomes the most sought after portrait painter in Groningen in 1640s. But beyond that, there doesn't seem to be um, any pattern. How about you have about the examples that you are working on?
1: All the Italians um, uh, work quite a lot as portrait painters. Uh, so there is a connection there. Um, uh, not only, of course, uh, it is uh, um, each of them basically tackles the kind of the, the kind of market art market that that is facing. So uh, generally, I mean, all of them work as portrait painters. Some of those have more um, opportunities to work on like major or like medium uh religious public commissions that of course depends on you know, from where they are for instance uh, you know an artist in genoa uh the one that i'm studying badaracco he is mostly excluded from those big commissions because genoa is a big market you know there are um uh, uh, strozzi and saldo working at his own time so you know he's not able to get those very big commissions but on the other hand there are others working in um um smaller centers that um uh, are able to supplement their work as portrait painters um, and, uh, and and painters for private collection with big uh, with big religious ecclesiastic commissions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but this there is this kind of portrait patterns that is very interesting. And there is a letter uh, I don't remember the date, uh, but concerns one of those artists, the uh, one that works in Ferrara, Ercole Sarti. It's a letter documenting the fact that he's a very very successful portrait painter, uh, that he uh, earns a lot from his portrait paintings. But on the other hand, the author of the letters uh, mentions that these portraits are actually awful. Um, and so <laughs> this is kind of. Uh...
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to look at what we can read between the lines in those early documents. Um, one of the early sources of Jan de Stomme discusses how he was married twice and the author feels compelled to tell us that both of his wives were quite pretty as if this was something very bizarre in the context of the man's um, impairment. So coming back to the challenges of our research that we were discussing earlier, I think you're absolutely right that Many of those documents, even when they were published and analyzed, they have been analyzed um, in a rather superficial manner in some cases.
1: Yeah, uh, all right. I'm going to ask you another question, which is mostly related to how the research translates into the teaching that we, we do. So I, I wanted to know if you include uh, your research and you know, your work on iconography of disability in your teaching which are the main challenges that you that you see and and also uh, how students are reacting uh, to this material
0: yeah so i include in my classes both iconography of disability and artists with disabilities and it is definitely a topic that captures a lot of interest and i think a Some of this interest is motivated by this more general curiosity of my students in things that have traditionally been outside the canon. Um, But it is also a topic that I can sense there is a lot of discomfort around it. I think for many of my students, this is the first moment in their lives when the topic of of disability came up in their classroom. And I think a lot of this discomfort comes from also not knowing what language to use. Um, So we are coming back to this difficulty with vocabulary, but again, I think for many of them, it's a question of representation. And along those lines, Disability scholars, as we know, tend to point out that in contrast to other marginalizing and marginalized identities, disability is something that each of us will experience at some point in our lives. So I think it's extremely important to discuss those issues with our students um, and to give them the opportunity to learn uh, to learn the vocabulary to learn the ways we can think about disability in our own lives how about you
1: um yeah i mean um, again i just vocabulary vocabulary um again it's also for me um uh, and, and for my students actually something that has to be explained and tackled um my for my students also english is second language so there is <laughs> the kind of additional additional barrier i i am um I've started to incorporate my, my research in, in my teaching, um, uh, mostly actually in, uh, in one of my first year subjects. And there are mean challenges of course, and aside from the one of languages, it's like how to frame the discussion historically and, and help students to understand how ideas, conceptualization, understandings of disabilities have changed throughout times. Uh, And this, I mean, this is part of the entire discussion, the the entire problem that sometimes we have as um, art historians of helping students to connect with images that are not made in the 20th century, not made in the 21st century. And so um, provide context to those those images. Uh, The response has been very, very good. I, I must stress that um, in, uh, uh, here at the Academy of Visual Arts, students will eventually uh, aspire to be practicing artists. And so mm-hmm. they also have uh, their own practice. And, and what I'm trying to do is basically to try to, um, to, to, to bridge this type of discussions, understanding, and bring them um, eventually in their own practice, collaborating with uh, the painting studio that we have uh, in order to organize an exhibition next year. Um, that will uh, uh, discuss students' perspectives about disability. Uh, luckily, there has been a very, very good response and also a lot of collaboration from colleagues. So that, that is always uh, very, very appreciated. And, uh, and with regard to this, I'm also trying to establish some sort of um, collaborations with uh, local associations active in the field. So basically allowing students to engage a little bit outside academia with uh, with associations that work in the field, especially those that promote the work of contemporary artists with disability. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was talking about this exhibition that hopefully will take place next year. This should basically incorporate our own students and and also really established artists. And uh, I mean, hopefully it's going to be interesting, but it is uh, it is for me just the start of a process. Um, I think uh, you know, I still have a lot of work to do in in trying to frame uh, my research more more appropriately for for, for teaching, uh, especially first year subject, uh, first year student.
0: Absolutely, yeah, I think the conclusion here is that we individually and as a field have still a long way to go, but there is a lot of new exciting things happening. So I hope that, you know, soon enough we will be having more scholarship and didactic tools and pedagogical resources available to us as well. Thank you both for a fascinating discussion. You've certainly given us a lot to think about. Listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast series and you have suggestions for future episodes, or you or someone you know has a new project you'd like to share, please contact us at administrator at hnanews.org. We'll see you in the new year.